Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. And so if you have a copy of God's Word or you have one on your smartphone, turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we're going to read just one verse this morning, Um, but before we do, let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we love you, we thank you, we praise you for you being awesome, and thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be with you, but God, I know that what I'm going to share today will be hard, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart to see you today. And Father, if there are sins in my life or our lives that we need to deal with today, would you give us the bravery and the courage to trust you with those? In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 51, verse one. Let's stand as we read God's word. Psalm 51, we're gonna begin with the superscript which is the little commentary from the writers of the book of Psalms. So here's how it begins. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You may be seated. I don't know in the spring if you followed the Alec Murdoch saga, the trials that took place. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of the podcast, uh, Murdoch, uh, Murder Mysteries. But in the spring, uh, the, the entire country was glued to the story of Alec Murdoch. Uh, Alec Murdoch was an attorney in South Carolina. His family uh, kind of founded the town, and uh, they were the cornerstone, the pillars of the community. And uh, he went through a trial, and the trial was over the murder of his wife and his son. In the trial, uh, evidence would come out that really just showed Mr. Murdoch's guilt. Evidence came out involving massive theft, drugs, intimidation, manipulation, and murder. But the thing about Alec Murdoch that that really has just kind of messed with a lot of people's minds is, is how he presented himself publicly. He presented himself as being a gentle, mild mannered, loving husband and father. His public life, however, according to his conviction in this trial, did not match his private life. As a matter of fact, the judge of the trial essentially pleaded with Murdoch to just admit your guilt. But he wouldn't. Even after his conviction, he wants to maintain the illusion of being a polite, respectable person who cares for his family and wants to do the right thing. Now, I tell you this is because I think that's where some people are in the church. I'm afraid that some people come to church Sunday after Sunday and and they wanna, you not necessarily murdered somebody this week, Uh, you not necessarily lie, stole, or uh, uh, stealed, or, or done some sort of drug conspiracy. Maybe you have, I don't know. But you come to church and you have a veneer of spirituality and you look the part and you dress the part and you act the part, but deep down inside, 
you know you're not right with God. See, if we're honest this morning, all of us have things in our lives that are hidden. They're hidden beneath the surface. And if we don't deal with these things that are hidden beneath the surface, they're gonna destroy our soul and if we allow them to continue their run, they're gonna ruin our lives. And so the message this morning is a loving warning. Now we're in Psalm 51. As I said, we're gonna be in this for two weeks and Psalm 51 is known as a penitential psalm. If you don't know what that means, it just means a song or a prayer of repentance. It is, it is a psalm, uh, it is a prayer of someone who is deeply troubled and alarmed by their sins. There are seven of these in the psalm, the psalms. There's uh, Psalm number six, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, 143. This particular psalm, Psalm 51, was written during the darkest moment of David, who was king of Israel's life. This particular psalm has been studied by so many scholars. There's so much to be understood because it really is a case study for what does it look like to truly repent of your sins and what does it look like to truly be restored in a right relationship with God. Now, as we read this, we're, we're gonna be really easy to judge David. We're gonna, we're gonna look at David's life and we're gonna hear David's story and we're gonna say, how could you, David? But here's the reality. David's story is our story. We're all sinners. All of us have the capacity and we have the ability to do some of the worst things imaginable. But just as David's story really is our story, David's psalm is our psalm. Because Psalm 51 is about, is about God who meets us in the moments of our deepest failure and transforms us by his grace. It is a psalm that says that broken sinners can be brutally honest with God and stand before him without fear. And so we're going to look at this psalm over the next two weeks at two different angles. We're gonna look at the reality of David's sin and then we're gonna look at the repentant attitude of David's heart. And so this morning, we're gonna uncover the reality of David's sin. We're gonna look at the evidence. We're gonna see what has led David to where he is and how did David get out of it. And so to understand the reality of David's sin, we must see the decision that he made and the confrontation that convicted him that would lead him to repentance and restoration. So let's unpack that. Number one, I want you to see a decision that destroys. In verse one of Psalm 51, the David writes here, he says, have mercy on me, O God. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Why does David ask that God would not give him what he deserved? And the reason why is because David sinned against God and he is begging God not to give him justice, but give him mercy. Well, well what did David do? Well, the superscript, which is that, phrase, that, that little bit of wording right by at the very top of the psalm, that's actually written in Hebrew by the writers of the psalms, and I believe it's under the inspiration of God. And so that superscript says that the occasion of this particular psalm is when Nathan the prophet went to David after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so for us to understand David's plea for mercy, we have to understand what got him in this situation. And so we go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and in verse number one, the Bible says that the, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that was his general, and his servants with him and all of Israel. And so David is the king. The king, there's a time of year that you go out to battle. It's in the spring. You don't go in the winter, you go in the spring. And so David sends Joab, David sends his servants, he sends all of his people, and they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Robin. So they were, uh, they were doing their job. But the Bible says here, there's a word, a little conjunction, it's a conjunction called but. But David remained in Jerusalem. So he was supposed to be at work, but instead he decided to stay home. Now, we don't necessarily know why David decided not to go to war. We don't, maybe, maybe he was just like, I'm tired of war. I'm tired of fighting. Or maybe he was just kind of like pretty, pretty overconfident that Joab's got this, my men have this, those, those Ammonites, they don't have doodly squat. 
Maybe he was just bored. But what we see here is that he was somewhere where he wasn't supposed to be. And that put him in a position that will cause him to do something he shouldn't do. Made him vulnerable. So verse two tells us that it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Now, this was the spring, so David has been watching March Madness. And he's, it's one late afternoon, so it's right before the evening games. He gets up and he's out walking on the roof of the king's house. Now, I know you walk on your roof, right? No, you probably shouldn't. Well, then that day they had flat roofs, which kind of served as a lanai. And so while he was up on top in his palace, the Bible says that he saw from a roof a woman bathing. In other words, she didn't have any clothes on. And the woman was very beautiful. And so David went from lazy to gazy, okay? Now, he's up on the top of everyone where his palace was so he can have a, a bird's eye view. And so, you know, he's sitting out there and who knows, you know, maybe he's drinking a Coke Zero and, and singing zippity-doo-dar, zippity-day. And, you know, he just, he was on Instagram there and he looks, he's like, wow. Now, in one sense, there's a look. All right, beautiful person, creation of God, but he turns from looking to lusting and he starts objectifying this woman. Now think about this. David was married. God had given David quite a bit of stuff. David was the king of Israel. David had blessing on top of blessing on top of blessing, but in that moment, in that afternoon, while on top of the roof, he didn't think it was enough. He was dissatisfied. And so verse three says, the Bible says that David sent and inquired about the woman. Hey, who is that woman? Wow. I want to know who she is. And so the Bible says here, and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, think about this. I didn't really think about this till this week. So think about it with me. He wants to, who's this woman? Who's that lady? Okay. <laughs> that bathing beauty. And one said, now, I'm, we don't know who the one is, but hear how the one is saying to him, hey, David, do you know who that is? Oh, no, who? Oh, that's Bathsheba. Well, who's that? that that's your best friend, because what we know in Scripture is a guy named Uriah the Hittite was, was like a hitman for David, like a best friend, a bodyguard for David. It's like his, one of his trusted men. And he says, listen, David, she's not your wife. She's someone else's wife. She's someone's daughter. And I read that this week and I said, that was God giving a warning. How many times when you look at something you shouldn't look at and then all of a sudden there's some warning shot you get? Danger, 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 something happens. You, you're, like, you're looking at something you shouldn't look at and you get a text message. Or you, you're doing something you shouldn't do it and someone comes up to you and says, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. Here was this warning. So David here gets this warning, but guess what? He doesn't listen to the warning. He goes out and he sends messengers. He says, hey, go get the girl. I don't care who she is. She's hot. And he came and they came together. And he sinned. You know, the Bible says... In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18, is it, the Bible says, flee from sexual immorality. Run. You remember when that lady came after Joseph? What did he do? He ran. Why? Because everyone, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, the sexual immoral person sins against his body. That word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. It's the junk drawer for sexual sin. It's any sexual relationship outside of marriage. The Bible says, run, 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 run. Flee, flee, flee. And so what we see here with David is instead of fleeing from sin, he started flirting with sin. And we will always fall to sin when we stop fleeing and we start flirting. 
See, in this particular moment, David said to himself, you know what, uh, I'm bored or I'm burned out. Um, there she is. I got this. And this was a guy, the Bible says, is a man after God's own heart. Now, remember what I told you a few weeks ago, that it's direction, not intention, that leads to your destination. I don't think that David wanted to blow up his life. I really don't think that a lot of people who have affairs want to blow up their marriage. It's a slow fade. So the question that maybe you're asking this morning, because you're a very astute group of people, is that why would anyone make a bad decision like that? Like, why would David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, uh, the one who has been given blessing after blessing after blessing, why in the world would he do this? And so uh, a, few weeks, a few months ago, April and I were at a, were at a conference, and, and we heard this guy who uh, is the CEO of Compassion, Jimmy Moraldo, and he, he gave a talk, and, and here's what he said. The reason why people make decisions like this, he says, think of your life in two categories. Your capacity, it's your ability to do stuff, and your challenges, the things in your life that are challenging you. And he said that when your challenges are less than your capacity, you get bored. Anybody ever been bored before? Now, don't say right now, okay? <laughs> Please don't say right now. But like... When your capacity is to do a bunch of stuff, but there's nothing really to challenge you, you get bored. I mean, that happens. But then he says that when your challenges are more than your capacity, you get stressed. Anybody ever been stressed in the room? Yeah. And so what he said is, is he said in this talk, he says that if you don't deal with boredom, and if you don't channel that unused energy for the purposes of God, you will look for an adrenaline escape to excite you. So what happens when you're bored is you look for stuff to do to make you, to entertain you, to excite you, to make you feel alive. But then he says that if you don't deal with stress and if you don't deal with it by finding relief in Christ, then what you'll do is you'll look for an emotional escape to relieve the pressure. So you're all worked up, you're all stressed out. You look for something to run to, something to turn to. So in other words, he says that if you do not deal with boredom well, or if you do not deal with stress well, you will make very bad decisions. So an example I have for you is Bill Clinton. Now some of you middle schoolers, you don't even know who that is. <clears throat> He was interviewed 20 years after his affair with a White House staffer. Bill Clinton was the president of the United States for you in middle school. <clears throat> and he had an affair with a woman. And they interviewed him and they asked him, well, why would you take a risk like that of having an affair with a woman that works for you in the White House? <clears throat> so here's what Bill Clinton said. He said, nobody thinks about that. Nobody thinks I'm taking a risk. That's not why people do stupid things. Nobody sits down and thinks, I'm going to take an irresponsible risk that's bad for my family, bad for my country, bad for the people who work with me. That's not what happens. He then adds, he says, it's like you it's like you feel like you're, a stag like you're just staggering around. You, you've been in a 15-round prize fight that was extended to 30 rounds, and here's something that you will take your mind off of it for a while. And that's what happens. So in this moment, David was either stressed out, burned out, or he was bored. And instead of doing what he was supposed to do, he sought an escape in the wrong place. And because of that, he shipwrecked in a bathtub. His son, Solomon, who would have similar issues, writes three chapters in the book of Proverbs talking about, he was warning his son about sexual sin. And here's what he says in chapter five, verse 15. He says, drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. In other words, stick with your spouse. 
Then he goes on in chapter 6, verse 25, and he says, a warning to his son, he's talking about the, 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 uh, the, another person. He says, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. I mean, even back then they had fake eyelashes, okay? <laughs> he says, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Amen. <laughs> then he goes on in chapter 7. And I like this because now he's giving a for instance. So here he's going to say, I've perceived among the youths, that is young people, a young man lacking sense. That's a euphemism for idiot. <laughs> I perceived among young people a young idiot passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In other words, what, what a lot of people do is, you know, like, I, I'm not really going to have an, I'm really not going to hook up with her or hook up with him. Man, I, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to drive by her house. I'm going to drive by his house. Or I'm going to slip into her DMs. Or I'm going to send her a text. Or for some of you people that don't do either one, I'm going to write her a letter. <laughs> I'm going to drive by her house. And if she happens to be outside, what's a sign from God? <laughs> You're going the right way, but then you see the wrong way. Instead of going the right way, you go the wrong way. And Solomon says, you're not just dumb, you're plain stupid. Verse 22, all at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. In other words... When you turn down the road, you're a dead man walking. Now think about this. David thought, man, you know, I got this. I can handle my circumstances. I can just have a little fun in the sun. But what he thought he could handle actually handled him. Because what happens? She gets pregnant. Uh-oh. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. And so what is he going to do? Well, you know, I, you know, my best friend's wife is pregnant and I'm the daddy. I got to do something about that. And so back in those days, they didn't have like tests. So they just kind of, they just, they had calendars. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. And so back in those days, it took nine months to bake a baby. Just like in our days, it takes nine months to bake a baby. Okay. And so he's sitting there thinking, well, you know what, my buddy out, you're right. I'm going to have him come on over, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have him come over. He's been out in war. He's been out in the field. been a bunch of stinky dudes. He needs to take a bath and go home and hang out with his wife. And so he, he says, hey, dude, come over there, do this, get ready, and go to your house and hang out. Y'all sit and watch Netflix and hang out and have a good time. And you're right. He doesn't go inside his house. He sits outside the door and sleeps outside the door of his house. David finds out Uriah didn't go in because Uriah's like, hey, I can't go in there and have fun and, and, and be comforted and be with my wife if all my buddies and everybody else is out living in squalor and fighting against the enemy. I can't do that. And so David said, all right, well, I gotta do something else. So David bites him over, gets him drunk, liquors him up, says, go home expecting that because the man is intoxicated, he's going to go home. But what happens is Uriah does the same thing he did the night before. Why? Because Uriah is a better man drunk than David was sober. And so David said, uh-oh. So David says, I got I to gotta cover this sucker up. And so he sends a letter by Uriah the Hittite. The hand delivers the letter to the general General Joab, and General Joab, this is King David, I want you to put Uriah the Hittite on the front line, and then when the enemy advances, I want everybody to walk away from him, and they, he just he gets killed. Now, if you're not kind of figuring out what that means, that means murder. Now, think about that just for a second. I can give you a commercial thought. You know David was supposed to be at war, but he wasn't. Uriah was. And so Uriah is in the place that David should have been. That'll be important in a moment. And you're sitting there thinking, like, man, what is wrong with David? 
It's the dude that fought Goliath. It's the dude that wrote songs. It's the dude that kept sheep. It's the dude that was godly. And he's now breaking bad. He's turned all Walter White here for some of y'all heathens in Northern Dawnmount. You know, I can't believe he would do that. And here's what I want to say. Every one of us in this room, every one of you watching online has the same capacity to do what David did. With just one bad decision or a few bad decisions from stupid. Because here's the, here's the thing. Human nature, here's what human nature asks. Those of you that are parents, understand this. Here's what human nature asks. How close can I get to the line before going over? Show me the line. And then once we figure out what the line is, then we ask this, how far can I go over the line without being caught? Because what we want to do is we want to push our limits because we don't want any restriction on our freedom. And let me the best way example to give you is this. What, what a lot of people ask is this, how, in your mind, you ask, how fast can I drive without getting a speeding ticket? Like, is it over nine, you are mine? Under nine, you are fine? Like, what is it? Now, here's the thing. Let's, let's get a little bit more local. Let's not get off of I-75. Let's go down to Livingston Road. <laughs> like, here's what you got to understand. No one drives 45 miles an hour on Livingston Road unless either A, you are not from here, or B, you are of a certain age. <laughs> hey, lady, she's 78. Came to me after this last service. She says, Preacher. I'm of a certain age, and I'm a speed demon. <laughs> Not kidding. But what you all are, what we're thinking is this, is that we think, well, can I go 53 in a 45 and not get a ticket? Now, we got some police officers here. If you ever see a blue truck going 53 in a 45, pray for me, okay? Don't pull me over. <laughs> but we think like, you know, can I go 53 and not get a ticket? And so, you know, and so we think, well, I got my ways. You know, well, here's the thing about, about ways. Ways tells you where the cops are. Y'all remember radar detectors? Well, ways is even better. Because you get points. <laughs> that don't mean anything. And so you're like, oh, I don't see any cops on Livingston Road. So I'm just going to go 60. I mean, all there is is, stop, is stoplights. And if it's yellow, it's fine. And so we, we trust ourselves and we get comfortable. We've crossed the line. And then all of a sudden, ways is wrong. Somebody's hidden and we're in trouble. Because here's the deal, Pickles. Your sin will find you out. Amen. It just will. Solomon said, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Listen, if you're, if you're involved in sexual sin, you are playing with fire. I'm just telling you straight up. And I'm gonna tell you something else straight up is that the, the, according to statistics, a large percentage of men in this room struggle with it. All right, that's the first point. I only got two. Second point. A confrontation that convicts. So this is where we really get into Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is written in response to when a guy named Nathan came to David and confronted him over his sin. And so verse one, the Bible says that the Lord sent Nathan to David. It's been almost a year after this event. David and Bathsheba are married. They have this baby. And David in his mind thinks, you know what? Maybe I got away with it. Uriah's dead. Nobody's, you know, nobody's really followed the things. There's no real evidence pointing to me. There is that letter, but I know Joab took care of that letter. And so maybe nobody knows what's going on. I mean, you know, it is what it is. I am the king. But God knew what happened. You can fool some of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people, all the people, some, uh, small, I don't know, I'm about to mess this little saying up. But you, they're, 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 the end is this, you can't fool God, right? You just can't fool God. And God loved David too much to leave him alone. So God sent Nathan the prophet. Now, Nathan comes. Nathan's like the nation's pastor, and he comes to David, and he tells David. Here's how he comes to him. He tells David, David, listen, there's something bad happening in your kingdom, and you need to hear about it. So here's a quick version of it. 
Nathan says to David, David, I heard a story in this town here in, in, in your kingdom that there's a rich man and there's a poor man. And this poor man, he, he had, you know, he had one little lamb, sheep, and, and this little lamb was like one of his kids. Matter of fact, this, ki- this little lamb lived in the house. His kids grew up with this little lamb. This kids loved this little lamb. They gave the lamb a, a nickname. The lamb's nickname is Lamb Chop. And, and he loved, I mean, it's like this, this, this lamb was like a kid to this man. And the, the rich man in town who owned all the sheep, who owned a bunch of sheep, had a bunch of stuff, had a friend come in from out of town, one of his fishing buddies, stays the night in his house. And what this man does, this rich man does, is he goes to the poor man and he steals that little lamb and cooks that little lamb for dinner and feeds the man from out of town. David, what do you think we should do about this rich man? And David is livid. He is so mad. This rich man, he can't do that. He shouldn't do that. That rich man needs to pay. That rich man needs to die for what he has done. And Nathan the prophet looked at him and said, you are the man. You stole a little precious lamb. But not only that, you killed the man. And David came face to face with his sin. Have you ever come face to face with your sin? And God lovingly brought David's sin before his face. And God does the same thing for you and me. And the reason why God did it for David and the reason why God does it for you and me is because he loves us and he does not want us to remain in our sins or stay the same. And it's painful. It's painful. But the Bible says that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance, that God will send you a friend or a teacher or a coworker or a boss or a sermon or a book or a podcast or time in the word, and the Holy Spirit will confront you. Because here's why. God does that because he loves you, because if if he doesn't do that, if there is no confrontation, there will be no conviction. And where there is no conviction, there will not be confession. And where there is no conviction, there will not be restoration. Listen, stay with me. The worst thing that God could ever do to any of us is leave us alone. That's what hell is. Oh, you don't want me? I'll leave you alone for eternity. The kindest thing that God or anyone else could ever do for us is to confront us in our sins. Now, we live in a world that hates confrontation. We have people that say, you know, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna make anybody feel bad. I don't, want, I don't wanna judge anybody. And we even have people, like the, the culture of today says, hey, listen, people should be free to live their truth. But here's what the Bible says. When people live their truth, they go to hell. It's kind of like a parent saying to themselves as they watch their kids touch a hot stove, well, you know what, if that's what they want, who am I to tell them they shouldn't do that? I mean, how much would a parent have to hate their kid to allow them to touch the stove when it's hot? Now, confrontation is tough. And, and I'm not telling you that you, you've got to be kind of like the world is, because the world does like some confrontation, but their confrontation is passive-aggressive. And so what you have is you have Twitter man syndrome. Twitter man syndrome is where people say on social media what they would never say to you in person. And we don't mind confrontation like that because it's confrontation behind a phone screen. The confrontation that God wants and that God does and that what you and I should do for other people is this. Confrontation, you'll see it with Nathan. Confrontation should be done personally, privately, sensitively, clearly, and graciously. That's what Nathan did. Nathan came in person. He did it personally. He didn't send a text. Didn't send an email. Didn't call him on the phone. He went to him. He did it privately, not publicly. He didn't make a public public spectacle. He didn't shame David publicly. He came to him privately. He did it sensitively. He used a story to show David his own sin. He did it clearly. He said, though, however, you are the man. He didn't mince words. He didn't say, well, maybe if you did this. No, he says, you did it. 
And then he did it graciously. He loved him enough. He didn't yell at him. He didn't scream at him. He just told him the truth. Do you understand that if you are a Christian, that is your responsibility to other Christians? It's not the preacher's job. It's your job. It's my job. It's all of our jobs. Galatians 6.1 says this. Brothers, if anyone is overtaken in a transgression, if anybody, if you see anybody caught up in sin, if you see anybody that's struggling with sin, you that are spiritual, you're to restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch, verse 2, over yourselves lest you be tempted. Then he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he says, if you see someone that's struggling, you who call yourself spiritual, your responsibility is to restore them. That word restore means to mend a broken bone. To restore someone, they are broken in sin, and you don't come and jar them, you don't come and yell at them, you don't come and beat them up, but you gently, lovingly, but yet firmly and intentionally help them get back together. But you know what a lot of us do as believers? We don't want to confront anybody. We just want to condemn them in our minds. Joby Martin, preacher up in Jacksonville, he said this. He says, it is easy for us to use the Bible as binoculars to see the problems everyone else has rather than a mirror to see how evil we truly are. So Paul says, and what Nathan is demonstrating here is that believers are called to carry the burdens of the broken and the wayward. So the other day, my kids... We bought something, Amazon. Y'all ever heard of Amazon Prime? <laughs> they had these Prime deals. You know what Prime deals means? I got $500 less in my bank account. <laughs> Someone's like, $500 is all you lost? I mean, <laughs> so we, kids come in, big old box comes in, oblong, really heavy. This is, this is not recently, but this is back in the past. Big old box comes in. One of my children sees it, it's theirs, it's heavy, it's awkward, and they want to bring it inside. And it's heavy. It's like 80 pounds, 100 pounds. What should I do as a parent? <laughs> you try that one, buddy. And you see them struggling trying to get it in, drag it in. They'll break it trying to get it in, right? What do you, do you yell up? Hey, stupid! Pick that up. Come on. Be a man. Hey, if this is good for you. It builds character. You'll be just strong like your daddy. All right? No, that's not what a good daddy does. What a good daddy does, what a good person does, if you see someone else struggling and they can't carry the weight, you come and you take one end and they take the other end, and that way both of y'all are carrying the weight together. As Christians, as believers, if we hear someone else is in sin, if we hear someone else is struggling, it is not our job to criticize them. It is not our job to just cheer them on. It is our job to bear the weight, bear the burden, and so be just like Jesus. And for us who call ourselves Christians, if we are not willing to confront others who are in sin and help them carry their weight, we are hypocrites. Because how is it that we who have received the grace of God will not bear the burdens of others? So David needed someone to tell him about himself. You need somebody to be able to tell you about yourself. See, the kind of friend that you want, the kind of friend that you need is not someone who says, well, that's their problem. The kind of friend that you want to need is not someone who says, well, I don't want to get involved. It's too messy. The kind of friend you need is not someone who says, you know what, That'll, if I get involved, it'll ruin our friendship. The kind of friend you need is someone who cares more about you than the friendship. The other day, I had a buddy of mine. We were talking about another buddy of, our, of ours, friend of ours, guy we have did life with and love. and We think he might, you know, was involved in something he shouldn't be involved in. And buddy looked, called me up and said, what should we do? He said, we should pray for him. I said, yeah. My friend knew details, everything I knew was secondhand, and I said, you know what your job is, is you need to go talk to him about it. He said, I can't do that. I said, yeah, you better do that, because that's what friends do. You know, I look, in my life, I've got three men in this church who have the right and the responsibility to do two things for me. Number one, they pray for me, and number two, they can tell me about myself. 
Everybody's got blind spots. Everybody's got stuff in their life. You need people like that. And so Nathan tells David about himself and he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He tells, hey, listen, this is what happens. There's consequences. And just because God loves you doesn't mean there's not consequences. Actions have consequences. And David's family is gonna be messed up because of what David did. But that's not the end of David. So let's end the, let's, let's end the sermon. Think about this. Stay with me. Try not to leave unless you have to. What is David's response? So David made a decision that was very bad. God lovingly confronts him. How does David respond? He says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice here, David does not get defensive. Normally when we are confronted, we get defensive. David does not say, listen, Nathan, you do not know how hard it is to be king. He does not say, listen, Nathan, you don't understand my needs. He doesn't say to Nathan, listen, you're the prophet, and I understand that's a hard job, but no one understands my life. See, what we do when we're confronted is we often function as our own defense attorneys, and we present arguments to justify our actions. And so what we do is we often either A, claim self-defense, or B, claim insanity. Because we argue that our greatest problems are outside of us, not inside of us. Do you understand that the greatest giant in David's life was not Goliath? It was himself. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And we're gonna unpack what that means next week, his confession. But one thing that you're gonna see is that David, in his confession, not only said that he sinned against God, but we're gonna look at even more, is that he had a desire to be different than he was before. See, confession is not some cathartic experience that makes you feel better about yourself and then you go right back to being what you were before. No, true confession that leads to true forgiveness requires true repentance, a desire to not be the same. And so David says, I have sinned against the Lord, verse 13. Nathan looks at him and says, the Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. In other words, Nathan says, God has canceled your sin without canceling you. Aren't you glad God doesn't cancel us like the world does? Now, again, it doesn't mean there wasn't consequences because what you're gonna find out is that David's child with Bathsheba will die and his family and his kingdom will not be the same. But yet, God says to him, I'm not done with you yet. I've got good plans for you. Aren't you glad to know that God does not reduce you down to your worst moments and that even in your darkest hours, he still has good plans for your life? There's a saying that says this, if you're not dead, he's not done. If you're not dead, God's not done. Some of you in this room, you're like, I'm done, it's over, I've I've messed up, I'm too far gone. There's no way God will ever do anything with me. Here's the truth, if you're not dead, he's not done. God has put away your sin. That word put away means to pass over, forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, some of y'all are reading this and you're like, man, that's too simple. That's too simple. That's too easy. Because you're sitting there thinking like, like the, the forgiveness doesn't match. Like, didn't David abuse his power and sleep with Bathsheba and sin against her? Didn't he manipulate or try to manipulate Uriah and then when Uriah wouldn't do what he wanted, have him killed to cover it up? Didn't David for over a year lie to a nation and act like nothing happened? And David just says, I'm sorry, forgive me, and God forgives him and doesn't kill him? That doesn't seem very fair. A friend of mine, a really, really good friend of mine asked me yesterday. He said, is David in heaven today? And I looked at him and said, yes. Because here's the thing. If I can go to heaven, anyone can go to heaven. And you're like, how can can David go to heaven? How, How can anybody go to heaven? How can God forgive us of our sins? It goes back to Psalm 51, verse one. What does he say? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. He didn't say, have mercy upon me, O God, according to how good I am. 
He didn't say, have mercy on me, O God, according to what all I've done. He didn't say, have mercy to me, O God, because of how much money I give or how much money I have. He says, have mercy on me, O God, because of your love. That word love in the Hebrew is chesed. You got a when you do it. Chesed. It's his covenant keeping, loyal, faithful love. One Jewish commentator said that it's a voluntary and extraordinary act of kindness between one in a strong position to one in a weak position. Another Jewish commentator said that the word chesed is a word picture. It's a picture of a nursing mother who hears her baby's cry. And there is a movement in that mother's body to go to the child and meet the needs that only she can do. When David cried out for mercy to his heavenly father, it moved the heart of God like a baby crying to their nursing mother. And God came and gave David what only God could give. And David knew that admitting his sins was not a death sentence because of God's love for him. And he trusted in that love. And what David believed by faith, we know by name. Because how you spell steadfast love is J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is the steadfast love of God. Because Jesus is the true and better Uriah who died at the hands of sinful men but yet whose blood covers our sins. Jesus is the true and better lamb that was unjustly slaughtered and whose death reminds us the cost of our sins. Jesus is the true and better Nathan who lovingly confronts us of our sins so that he can bring us back to God. So you can know that if you cry out to God for mercy, it is available because Jesus died so you can have it. So let me in. I know I'm a long-winded sermon, but I only have two, and I normally have three, and, and y'all get it all, okay? Stay with me. I want to be honest with you. This message was not done on accident. I didn't read your mail, but God did. And God loves you enough this morning to confront you and I don't know what sin you're involved in right now. I don't know what you're doing. But God does. And you got a decision to make. Are you just going to continue living in denial? And just try to cover it up? And I'll tell you this. Covering up works for a little while. It does. But it won't work forever. Your sin will find you out. And so you got a decision to make. Are you going to keep trying to cover it up? Or are you going to come to Jesus? Blessed is the man and woman whose sins are forgiven. So would you just bow your heads, close your eyes. No one's looking around. No one's going to make fun of you. I want you to ask the Lord this one request. God, reveal to me my sin. Would you just pray that right now? It's one of the hardest prayers to pray. And maybe God has answered that prayer already this morning. Maybe you're in a relationship you shouldn't be in.
Maybe you're watching things you shouldn't watch. Maybe you're saying things you shouldn't say. Maybe you're doing things that you know are not right. I want to give you an opportunity to get right with God. And so whatever that sin is, if you just come to Jesus and you, you confess it to be what it is, don't, don't, don't cover it up, don't excuse it, don't blame everybody else, own it. And then genuinely desire to be different. I don't want to be the same. I promise you by God's word, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all of it. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to have a time where I'm going to have pastors down here in the front. And all we're going to do, we're not going to ask you about your sins. We're not going to ask you anything. All we're going to do is if you need prayer with whatever you're struggling with, there'll be people down here who love you, who are just, just wanting to help you, pray with you. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to ask you questions. They're just going to pray with you. And I want you to come down if you're struggling. And you're like, oh, if I come down, people are going to know I'm a sinner. Well, we're all sinners. You're just an honest one. The rest of them are liars. So I'm going to pray. And then when I get done praying, I want you to stand. And we're going to sing a song. And it's going to be done a little soft. And I just want you to come. And I want you just to come. There'll be pastors right down here in the front. So pastors, go ahead and make your way down here. And as soon as we start singing, I want you to come. And if you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't have to talk to anybody. You can come straight up here to the front. But listen, if we want to see restoration, we need to start with repentance. So Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that your Holy Spirit will do a work in this room. That God, you will bring people to yourself. That those sins that we think are hidden are open to you. And God, you love us enough to confront us and convict us and you call us to repent. And so God, today we wanna do that. God, give strength and courage to those who need it. And for those who do not know you as Savior, would today be the day they surrender their life to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Pastors are already down here in the front. Just come on, come as you are. Stand, come, stand, come. If you want deliverance, if you want freedom, if you want healing, come to the altar. Come on, come on, come on. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.